Hello, everybody. This is Jim Blackburn. This is another episode. Actually, it's the 13th episode since I've started of my podcast, Grit, Stories of Resilience. I hope you will enjoy today. It's the story of my time at 42nd Street Oyster Bar. It first became a time where I spent a lot of money there, a lot of lunches there, all of my drinks there when I was a lawyer at the law firm, which was only about, oh, I don't know, a block or two away. And I would call down there at uh, 11 o'clock on any weekday morning and speak to the restaurant manager on duty, who was my good friend, Janet Maui, and ask her what the weight looked like for lunch. And she always was so nice to me and always you know, said, Jim, come on down, we'll make room and find something for you. That's when the Oyster Bar was at its heyday. People came down there. It was the only game in town around that time. Uh, and so it was always crowded for lunch. You know, it's it's an interesting thing that uh, the last the last Christmas or the last December that I was practicing law at, at Smith Helms, just two or three weeks before I left, we had a Christmas party and everybody had to dress up. And you know what I did? I dressed up as a waiter. And I think I went to see Janet, as a matter of fact, and borrowed uh, the uniform, the suspenders, the bow tie, all this stuff. You had my own white shirt and uh, I didn't need an apron, but had the black pants and everything. And uh, when is it waiter? I never dreamed in a million years that I would keep those clothes and wear many of them to my own work at 42nd Street a couple of years later. But I'm sort of getting ahead of my story. I uh, it stumbled around after I'd gotten out of Wake Correctional in the spring of 1994, trying to figure out what to do. And I first decided I would write a book worked hard at it, wrote drafts. It was a long book, printed it all out on paper, gave it to some of my friends, my lawyers, lots of people. I want to tell you, nobody liked that book. Oh, it was terrible. They said it just wasn't any good. One of them said it was one of the worst things they'd ever read. So <laughs> I put it away. I didn't go any further with it. And I was disgusted and depressed and sad. And uh, I would later, of course, reinvent that book and redo it completely and come out with the much better edition that is Flame Out, that is the book that I now have uh, sold over the years, and it's done well. The reason it didn't do well is I hadn't yet figured out how to let stuff go, and I just wasn't quite as gracious and humble and all that sort of thing and as I, and persistent as I needed to be. I later got that way a little bit more and I, I owe a lot of it to my time at 42nd Street waiting tables. You know, you're not going to make any money waiting tables if you're not pretty nice to people, gracious to people, smile at people, try to help them and persistent and honest and keep doing the best you can and show up every day. If you don't show up every day at work, you know, you're just not going to make any money. And money was what I wanted to make. 
people have asked me over the years, did you go to 42nd Street and work as a waiter because you wanted to use that as a way of starting over and coming back? And I laughed and I said, no, that was the furthest thing from my mind at that point in time. But what was in my front of my brain at that time was I needed to find somewhere where I could say make some money and make it quickly. The great thing about waiting tables is you don't have to wait a month to get a paycheck. You get to take home whatever cash you're entitled to that night. It may not be much, but when you don't have much, anything is good. And so, but I didn't really start out as a waiter. I went to see my friend Brad Hurley, who had longtime co-owner of the uh, Oyster Bar with his friend John Vick. John Vick had been a good friend of uh, Thad Ewer, and Brad had worked with Thad Ewer, who originally owned the Oyster Bar. But now they they owned it as Thad had gotten sick and passed away. And so I go to see Brad one day. He's sitting there in the bar area on one of these high-top tables, drinking probably a glass of tea or water or something. He looks up and sees me and motions to come over and speak to him. We had been friends. I said, Brad, listen, I need a job. He said, doing what? He said, well, I'd like to work here. He looked at me and almost fell off the chair. He said, you want to work here? I said, absolutely, I do. What do you think you want to do? I said, well, Brad, I've been thinking about it. I believe that I ought to be a manager or could be a manager. He says, you do? I said, yeah, I was a lawyer. I've been here a lot. I, I know what the restaurant looks like and that sort of thing. He said, Jim, do you think that if I asked you right now to go get me a glass of sweet or unsweetened iced tea or a cup of coffee or even water or hush puppies, you know how to do that. And I looked at him and said, no. Have you ever worked in a restaurant before, Jim? No. Jim, as much as I hate to say this, I don't think I can give you a job as a manager. But I'll figure something out. Why don't you come back about mid-afternoon, say around 3 o'clock. Let me talk to Christine, who was one of our managers in charge of certain parts of the oyster bar. So I said, okay. Got in my car, went home, came back. Not happy, but okay. I walk in. He says, Jim, you know, we're going to make you a host if you want one, to be one. I said, Brad, what, what, I don't know what a host is. What do hosts do? He looked at me dumbfounded. He said, Jim, they stand up there at that podium. You see right over there? I said, yes. He said, stand up there. Take names for people who make reservations. You take people to their table. Take their menu and tell them to have a nice evening and come on back. That's it. Do you think you can do that? I said, yeah, I think I could probably do that. How much do hosts make, Brad? He said, well, they make about $6 an hour. I looked at him and said, is that, is that before or after taxes? He said, Jim, that's, that's before taxes. Oh, I thought to myself, that's terrible. But it was $6 more than I was making now. So I said, okay, when do I start? Well, you fill out the paperwork and, and we'll start your first shift on Wednesday at five o'clock sharp. This is this was a Monday. I said, okay. So I go home and you know, I had too much time on my hand. I'd spent too much time not working. 
this is going to be my first paying job in some time. So I get out this old computer and I write Brad a letter just like a lawyer. Dear Brad, colon, paragraph. You know, Brad, I didn't say you know, I said, Brad, thank you so much for the opportunity to work with you at the Oyster Bar. I just don't think I am ready to do this right now. And so I, I must decline the offer, but I greatly appreciate your kindness and signed it, got in my car and drove down, put it in an envelope, put his name on the front and went to the Oyster Bar. It was around lunchtime. He wasn't there. He'd gone. But I knew where his office was. So I walked back into his office at his desk and put the envelope on top of his desk and left. This was still Monday afternoon. I did not show up for my shift on Wednesday. Brad didn't show up that day anymore either. And he was out, so he never saw my letter. So he never told anybody that I was not going to be here. So they were short a host that night. This did not go over well with anyone. On Friday of that week, I go back to see Brad somewhat sheepishly and ask him, if I could have my job back. He looks somewhat harshly at me. Then he smiles and says, sure, Jim, you can. I'm not going to hold that against you since you did write a letter and put it on my desk. I just didn't see it. But you have to start tonight. I'm not going to let you leave. I'm just not going to let you leave because you may change your mind again. But I will let you go home and change clothes. I want you to put on coat and tie on. Look nice. You don't have to wear the uniform. Because, you know, Jim, as old as you are, if you wear a coat and tie, many of the guests will think you're an, a manager or owner or something. They won't know who you are. And they'll complain to you rather than to me when something goes wrong and I won't have to deal with it. I laughed. I said, okay. So there I am. You know, legend has it in my own story that everybody thought this was a wonderful thing for me to do. My lawyers, my psychiatrist, Dr. Spaulding, everybody thought it was great. They all thought this was wonderful. This is years later. Let me just tell you, none of that is true. Nobody wanted me to do this. No one. They didn't like me going to the oyster bar. They thought I'd been there too much. It was too social. It was too close to the law firm. What in the world was I thinking? But I went anyway. My first night, it was okay. I do remember somebody dropping a glass of water on the floor, making the floor wet. And I looked at it and I said, oh my God, who's going to clean that up? And finally somebody said, Jim, you're supposed to clean it up. I, okay. So I got a short, small white towel they have over there and cleaned it up. First time I'd ever been scammed in my life came later that night when two yahoos were leaving and they had these glasses with the Oyster Bar logo on it. And they um, wanted to take them home with them. It cost $2 a glass. They said, can't we take them? This is our own personal souvenir, having had a nice dinner. Can't we? And I said, sure, take them. I never let that happen to me again. Ever let that happen to me again. So 
I have to tell you, that was the beginning of my time hosting. You don't make a lot of money hosting. You do see some people. So a couple of things humorous happen. There used to be a daily paper at Raleigh called The Spectator, sort of a rag. Came out once a week. It was free. They put it up at newsstands, you know. And they did an interview with me and had my take my picture but in front of the rolling bar wire at uh, Wake Correctional. It's a nice interview. It's a good picture, but I squinted into the sun. People would come there and pick it up and look at it as they're waiting to get to the hostess stand or be seated. And then they'd look at me and they would do a double take. That was somewhat amusing. I didn't make much money, though. But my first paycheck was coming in about 10 days. And word had gotten out to various people that I was working there. And I want to tell you this story. It's unbelievable to me. Larry Stockner, who at that time was an anchor for the Durham television station, whom I once represented on a matter, called me and said, Jim, we want to film you getting your first paycheck at the Oyster Bar. I said, Larry, it's got to be a slow news day, but you want to do that. Well, I know it is sort of a slow news day. Can we can we do this? And so I said, well, I don't know. I guess we'll, he said, we'll talk to the bank. Where do, you, where do you bank? Oh, it was Bank of America, which is at that time was a big office uh, building downtown Raleigh. So I got my check, went down to the bank, and right outside the bank was... Channel 11 had a photographer and a newscaster. They followed me into the lobby of the bank and watched me deposit my check, which was for about $166 or so. I cannot believe that, but they did that. One of the things that I tried to do working at the Oyster Bar was to be younger. I was obsessed with being younger. Because, you know, waiting tables, working at a restaurant is, is a social job. But it's also, I think, for the most part, a young person's job. If you go into a restaurant in the next few days and you go there and there's an older person working as a waiter or waitress, I won't tell, to tell you there is a story there somewhere, as there certainly would be with me. One night, this couple came to the Oyster Bar for dinner. Just the two of them. I took them to their table. And as I was walking, I turned to the lady who was wearing sort of a large dress, no belt. I said, well, tell me when your baby is due. And she looked at me. She said, I'm not pregnant. And I don't know what was going through my brain. But I looked right back at her. I said, well... No more hush puppies for you. I, I am just grateful that she didn't slug me or her husband didn't slug me, but they laughed. They were gracious about the whole thing. Long after, not long after that, I decided, you know, I need to do something more. I need to make more money. Six dollars is just not cutting it. So I asked Keith Nye, who was one of the managers at that time. He was the son-in-law of a former FBI agent who was a friend of mine. If I could wait tables, he looks at me, he says, Jim, are you sure you want to do this? Well, I, well, yeah, I've never done it before, but I'd like to try. 
Jim, if you do this, you're going to have to wear the uniform with a bow tie and the suspenders and the whole nine yards. Can you do that? Keith, I wore prison grades for 100 days. Good God, I can wear this. Okay. You'll start training next Monday. So I was training, wasn't getting paid my $6 an hour. I don't know what I was getting paid, probably a couple of dollars an hour, which is what waiters get paid. Not getting any tips. You can't get tips while you're training. It takes most new wait staff people, a young person, maybe one to two weeks to uh, train. I bet it took me two months. Bet it took me easier two months. Not only was I old, I was slow. And I had no brain for waiting tables or working in restaurants or the food industry or anything like that. The chef, who was a good guy, a little brusque, but a good guy named Mark, he'd gotten upset with me when I was cutting up the lemons for garnishments. Except that I wasn't cutting up lemons. I was cutting up oranges mistaking the orange for lemons. I ruined an entire box of oranges doing that. He just went away grumbling. Well, it's good learning experience. So I, I really, when I tell you the truth that, that I really didn't know too much what I was doing, that's pretty accurate. I learned the different salad dressings. I learned that blue cheese was lumpy and ranch had freckles. I could pick out the fresh fish, except I could never tell the difference between grouper and mahi just by looking at it. I could never do that. I could tell the others. I could tell swordfish, I could tell tuna, could tell salmon, but not the difference between grouper and mahi, which were often the fresh fish of the day. Anyhow, I finally got approved to wait tables on my own. And my first shift was a weekday at lunchtime. You would think lunch is pretty easy. It doesn't cost as much. There's a shorter menu. But that's the problem because people tend to get the stuff that's fast because they don't want on a short period of time. So they get the fried shrimp, popcorn shrimp or fried oysters or something fried because it comes up so quickly. This is the 1990s. We weren't as health consciously then as we are today, I guess. Anyway, these five highway patrolmen come in in the uniforms. They're sitting this round table right in the front of the restaurant. And uh, I wait on them. I take their orders. It's all fried food. And they get salads. So I went to the register and rang in all their food, like I thought I should. And then I wandered around getting their drinks. And by the time I'd gotten their drinks, their food was up but I had not yet gotten their salads. I had not yet gotten their salads. So I took their food to them. Then I went to get their salads. And this other waitress who hadn't been there too long, but she was pretty good. She's a little tough. And she says to me, Jim, I just noticed that they're eating. They haven't gotten their salads yet or the slaw or whatever. What are you doing? I'm getting their salads right now. Her name was Kathy. I, Kathy, I'm getting there right now. And uh, she said, actually, I said, actually, they asked to they asked to get the salads last. 
I know that's unusual, but that's what they asked. And she looked at me, she said, Jim, I don't believe that. And she said, I just don't believe that. that's not right. And I started, I couldn't help myself. I started laughing. I said, of course, it's not right. I just rang the food in too quickly. I said, can you help me? Yes. And she grabbed the stuff and grabbed the salads and took them out there. It was great. So the lunch went okay. But at the end of it, their bill was about $50. And the, uh, the highway patrolman in charge looked at me and said, you know, you're not too good. I said, well, I don't know why I said this. I said, well, give me a break. This is my first day. And he starts to laugh. Having been an assistant U.S. attorney, being a highway patrolman didn't really frighten me too terribly much, you know. So I said that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. We will leave you a nice $10 tip, which is 20%, Jim, but only on one condition. I said, well, what's that? Well, when we pay you, we want you to stand here for a couple of minutes like you're talking to us and tell us for a couple of minutes anything you can about the Jeffrey McDonald murder case. And I looked right back at him and I said, you know who I am? He said, of course we know who you are. We all know who you are. We were happy you're waiting on us. But will you talk to us about McDonald? And I said, yes, I will. And I, of course I did. This is a good point to tell you. The most two often questions I ever got asked at the Oyster Bar were, what is your fresh fish of the night? That was always number one. But number two quickly followed, do you think he really did it? And with a subsection question, I understand how he might kill the wife, but I don't understand how he could kill the kids, which, of course, doesn't speak too well for wives. Those are the questions I always got asked night after night or day after day for the entire time that I worked at the oyster bar. I thought too much like a lawyer, one of the waiters told me. I just needed to do it. It wasn't that difficult and I was making it more complicated than it should be. You just need to take their order, ring it in, well, it's ready and take the food to the table. Jim, that's all you have to do. Okay, I can do that. Okay, I can do that. You need to write down pieces of paper. Well, I went to the store somewhere and got some a stack of paper, tore my pieces apart, and I wound up with about 15 or 20 pieces of paper in my pockets with no idea which ones there was going to, which person it went to, which table it went to, because I didn't have enough sense to write down the table number on the piece of paper. And it was a disaster. I remember writing SF on one, which was shorthand for seafood fettuccine, but I forgot that it was seafood fettuccine. My mind went blank, and the only thing I could think of was the San Francisco 49ers, and of course that, that wasn't going to work. So, you know, I did the best I could. I finally, finally began to get a little better. Let me tell you what I did right and then tell you what I did wrong. I did right. I was always on time. I was never late. I always stayed the whole time. I didn't disappear. I was always out around the tables. I uh, could make small talk with tables. 
I could be pleasant and entertaining, I suppose. I don't know. I thought I was entertaining. They may not have, but I tried to be. What I did not do well was I could never remember where the different fish went from. I would always go up and ask somebody, Janet, usually, Janet, where's this fish come from? Jim, it comes from the ocean. Well, I know it comes from the ocean. What part of the ocean? Well, it comes from the Gulf. And I learned that if I tell people that anything comes from the Gulf, they go, ah, that's impressive. And they like that. And so I told them lots of stuff came, you know, from the Gulf. My favorite dessert was the bourbon pecan pie with ice cream. And I always told people, if this is your last meal on earth, that's what you need to have as your dessert. And the best meal that you need to have was the lightly blackened grouper with mashed potatoes. Uh, unless you get the cheese potato, which of course is very good. And the bourbon pecan pie. That's what was my ideal dinner at 42nd Street. Sold a lot of pecan pie that way, I can tell you. Well, as time went on, I got to where I didn't work the floor too much because the floor is generally designed for people who are really young and fast. I was neither. So I would work three booths, which was a little bit more stable. You couldn't get overwhelmed. They call it getting in the weeds and getting triple sat. I had this friend, Lorraine, who was at that time 27. I guess, I guess she's older now, but she was 27 at the time. Lorraine was tall, thin, great girl. Great. We were, we became fast friends. And, um, we used to compete with each other as to how much we were making in terms of tips at any point in the evening, like seven o'clock, I'm at here, eight o'clock, I've got this, 10 o'clock up there. We were competitive the whole night long. This went on for months and months and months. My favorite thing when she was getting to a little too big for her britches, I thought I would put some ice cubes down the back of her shirt right as she was walking out to the table and she starts screaming that I had done this as she had to walk down to, out to the table. She retaliated by always stealing the checks I mean the 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 credit card material that I was going to give to the uh to the table and she would put her lips on it so it would have lipstick on it and I have to redo them. And that's how she would always get back at me. You might think that we had fun. I did have fun. I, I learned to laugh. I learned to work pretty hard, walked an awful lot. Could eat anything and stay thin because I walked so much. My goal every night was to make what they call a bill. A bill being $100. You had to tip out the uh, the, the uh, runners and stuff, people who would help clear the tables and things. But uh, most times I could do okay. Sunday was a little slow. It was sort of family night. Monday and Tuesday was a little slow, but... You know, by the time Thursday comes around, Thursday through Saturday, it was pretty good and you could do well. I got where I worked as many shifts as I could, as many shifts as I could. Got along, I think, with most of the people there, or at least I tried to. I enjoyed so much having a glass of wine or two, sitting at the bar afterwards, and maybe Larry or one of the other people behind there, uh, boiling shrimp for us or oysters or steaming something for us. Sometimes I had to pay for the wine. Sometimes there were mistakes. I loved it when there were mistakes. And I would always ask uh, the bartender in the back room, any mistakes tonight? What were they? And if it was something that I liked. I said, would you save that for me? And she would say yes or no or whatever. And so I would 
If it was a mistake, I did not have to pay for it, which was a great thing to do. One night, the uh, oyster bar was a little chilly. And, and one of the patrons there at one of the tables, it was 109, I still remember the booth back in the back, said that she was cold and could I get the managers to turn the heat on or at least turn the fans off on the air conditioner. I said, sure, I'll go speak to them. Of course, they weren't going to do anything because they were central to the whole restaurant. So I came back and said, I've spoken to him. I did not tell you, say to him that he ain't going to do anything. And so she complained again. And so this time I said, well, you know, let me do this. So I went back to the back area where the warehouse was and got a white tablecloth, brought it, opened it up, completely clean tablecloth, and wrapped it around her like you might a shawl. She just thought I was wonderful. She just thought that was the greatest thing except that the lady in the next booth, 108, wanted one also. Well, I went and got her one, too. Brad Hurley happened to be there that night. He didn't like this. He was getting ready to complain at me until his wife, Joe, who is my good friend, said, Brad, you need to leave Jim alone. They like what he's doing. And remember, Brad, I own part of this restaurant with you since I am your wife. And he sat right back down and stayed right there. And he was complimentary, actually, after it was all done, thinking outside of the box. There was a lady there one night. The oyster bar is not child-friendly. And so we didn't have changing tables or anything like that. But there was this lady with a newborn baby, a relatively newborn baby, wanting to do something with a child who needed to be changed. And she, I said, well, we just don't have anything. She said, can't you think of something? I said, yes. Get your baby, you come with me. So she picked up her baby. We walked out of the dining room, into the bar, back into the warehouse. They had some extra tables there. And I got a tablecloth, spread it out over the table. He said, you take as much time as you need. And she just thought that was the most wonderful thing. Doing these sorts of things was simply fun. It didn't always go well. Sometimes people were jerks. There was a time, one time, it was sort of funny. This one guy, I think it was lunchtime, older man coming with three nice women, ladies. And I was waiting on them. And in the middle of the lunch, he turns to me and says, aren't you Jim Blackburn? I said, well, yes, I am. He said, didn't you used to be an attorney? I said, yes, I did. I thought so. Didn't you get into some trouble? I said, well, yes, I did. He turned to the women and just beamed. He says, my son is one of the investigators. He investigated Jim. And I looked at him and he was smiling about it. I said, you know, I helped. I was holding a pitcher of water. I said, you know, I could make a mistake and have an accident and drop this bucket of water, pitcher of water, in your lap if you don't be quiet. He got really offended, but the lady started giggling. He got quiet. I did not ever do that. The only time I ever really got in trouble was one time when there was a young couple there. And I walked up to him. I was trying to be as nice as I could. And I said, uh, hey, guys, how are you doing? And she made a complaint to the manager that by calling and saying, hey, guys, I didn't think she was very attractive. And it was insulting her. And I said, well, Chris, I didn't mean to do that. I, she, she's not the most beautiful person I, I saw, but I didn't want to try to insult her. He said, I know. So people are sensitive sometimes. You have to learn that people are sensitive.
what I learned is you have to be nice to people you just assume not be nice to. You have to smile when you don't feel like it. You have to act happy when you feel terrible. You have to be upbeat when you're really downbeat. You just can't bring your problems to work. If you do, you're simply not going to have a good time and you're going to make absolutely zero money. Sometimes I would get upset and angry, lose my cool. One night I got so upset, I got a wine glass, went into the back warehouse, and as hard as I could, threw it and broke it into a thousand pieces against the brick wall. Another time I kicked the trays. I didn't like my sitting section, you know. I kicked the trays. You know, kicking trays, dish trays, they're heavy. I like kicking one of them. It's like kicking a wall. So I walked to the front bar where Christine was working as a bartender that night. I said, Christine, I think I've hurt my foot. I told her what I'd done, and she started laughing. Well, take your shoe off, Jim. Put it up here. Let me take a look at it. So I took it off. She said, mm, looks hurt. Does that hurt? Yes, it hurts. Uh, you've probably sprained it or something. Let me put my shoe back on and go back to work. But when you take your shoe off, and you're spraying your foot, you cannot put your shoe back on because the swelling prevents you from doing that. So that was a disaster. I never dropped food but one time, but I didn't break any plates. I was carrying three or four plates with a lot of what I would call goo one night, and they slipped on my arm because I have short arms, and they fell on the table but not on the floor. And it all came out on the table. And I looked at them and I couldn't resist. I said, I guess you all want some more food, don't you? And they started laughing and said, yes. So I said, well, we need to change the tablecloth. No, we don't need to change the tablecloth. And they got up and helped me fix the tablecloth. So it was, they were all okay with it. And people around clapped. It was nice. It was fun. I learned several thoughts that I want to tell you about. It became my belief, and I still hold this belief today, that the best people in the world are those who are young and those who are old. The young people don't care what it is you've done in your life, just so long as you can help them while you're there. The older people doesn't bother too much because they've been lived long enough to have made mistakes themselves, and they know the power of forgiveness. It's the people in the middle that are the most judgmental. At least that was the way I saw it at 42nd Street. The young people and the old people are the ones I liked always the most. I like bikers a lot. They always drink Crown Royal. They were always the nicest people in the world I ever saw. And they always left great tips. I learned not to judge too much. One night, this elderly couple came, and I didn't want to wait on them because I, the place was slow, was dead, and I wanted to get off. And I asked some people to take my table. They wouldn't do it, so I was stuck. So I was nice. Their bill was about $35 or $40, something like that. And they gave me a, a gift card gift certificate for $75. 
And I said, I'll be right back with your change. And they said, no, no, we don't want any change. We want you to keep the balance for your tip. I said, you can't give me $40 for a tip. Yes, we can. I said, how are we going to, why? Well, this is a gift from our daughter. It's our wedding anniversary tonight. She works for the newspaper. She'll be so upset with us if we come back and tell her we only spent $35 out of 75. She wants us to use the whole thing and we want to use the whole thing. So it's, if you, you were nice to us, you were so nice to us. If you would just keep that, we'd be so grateful to you. It's amazing. I saw the most random acts of kindness and graciousness there. People two or three times over my course of my time there would give me a, a $100 bill whom I did not know. Just put it in the palm of my hand and walk off. At lunch, in the evening, a couple of times. I was always just blown away by how people could be. You know, it's hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're busy. It's hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're trying to make somebody else happy with their meal or whatever it is that you're doing. It's hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're trying to make money doing anything. I always remember the line that is attributed to Martin Luther King, who once said, if you're going to be a street sweeper, you need to be the best street sweeper you can possibly be. Well, I wasn't sweeping, sweeping streets. I was waiting tables. You would never mistake me for fine dining. I would never be able to do that, not in a million years. But in the short time that I worked there, which was two or three years, I did the best I could. I was persistent. I tried. I stuck with it. I learned that the greatest aphrodisiac in the world is not power, as Henry Kissinger once said, but vulnerability. I learned that there's great wisdom in being humble. There's great joy in being nice. And when you do all these things, you get it all back tenfold. This is where I learned to start over. This is where I learned that I might have a second chance. This is where I learned that everybody did not dislike me. This is where I learned that people would admire you if you died to the best you could. And this is where I learned that people do not really care what it is you do, so long as whatever it is you do, you're doing the best that you can. That's the key factor, not it, what you do, but whatever it is that you're doing, that you do the best at it that you can. If you do that, you will be successful if you define success as being happy. I got a lot more from the Oyster Bar than I gave to it. I made some great friends there and they remain great friends. Going back to the Oyster Bar is truly like going home for me. I've spent many, many days, many, many lunches and many, many nights in that restaurant. It looks pretty much the same. But most of the people who worked there when I was there, they're gone. They've retired. They've moved on. They've taken other jobs. But there will always be that time when I look back at that period of 
years in the mid-90s and once in the early 2000s is one of the highlights of my life. I was doing a CLE seminar a number of years ago, and a wonderful lawyer in Raleigh, who is sadly now passed away, Bob Clay, who I think was with the law firm of York Young Morton Henderson, said to me, he said, Jim, of all the things you've done in your career, legal and otherwise, I think the best thing you've ever done, ever done in your whole life, was working at 42nd Street as a waiter. That's the best thing you've done. I hope you've enjoyed today. I could go on and on and tell you stories. I just would say to you all, don't give up on yourself. Try to do something that makes you enjoy your life. Don't worry about what other people may say about what it is that you do. All you need to do is the best that you can. Thanks so very much.